Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website. Well, recently I found a new Netflix show called Spy Ops, and it is a show about true stories of American spies. Uh, the first the first episode is one of, after 9-11, some spies that went over to the Middle East to dismantle the Taliban, and they were very successful at that. The second one, uh, they go to Panama to depose uh, the dictator, Manuel Noriega, and uh, that's as far as I've gotten. But it's very fascinating to me. I've always been very intrigued by spy movies. I remember as a kid, uh, 007, James Bond. Uh, I, I actually found out last night just randomly that James Bond was originally going to be called Rodney Bond, uh, but they thought that sounded too weird, and so they changed it to James Bond. But I, I still remember as a kid, Jaws, that big dude with metal teeth. Do you remember that? And I would have nightmares about that guy at night. But, but James Bond was so cool, so stealthy. And he had all those fun toys, like a submarine car and things like that, right? And then as I got up into college, then it became Mission Impossible with Ethan Hawke, right? You get this, this note, like if you, if you choose to accept this mission, otherwise this will be destroyed in five seconds. And he would go on and do this great adventure. Uh, and then more recently, there's been the born identity, born supremacy, born whatever. There's a bunch of, all of these have like five to 10 to 15 sequels. They're very popular movies. And as I started thinking about uh, the anatomy of a spy movie, a couple of things jumped out to me that in a spy movie, there is always a villain that you love to hate. Uh, because they're just absolutely evil, right? Uh, and of course, you have the spy who is stealthy and smart and tricky and usually very attractive as well, is usually how it goes. Um, and, and then, of course, they're, they're going through this, and they, they get into this spot where they think, surely there is no way out. Surely they are going to die. And then somehow, miraculously, they get out of it. And, and in it, there's always this twist in which a good guy becomes a bad guy, or you find out they're a bad guy, or a bad guy you find out is actually a good guy. And of course, there is the happy ending where they ride off anonymously into the sunset because they are a spy. Uh, if you're like me and you love spy stories, you will love Joshua chapter 2. Because Joshua chapter 2 is a story of two spies that go into the promised land, and it has an unforgettable twist to it. So if you would, please open up to Joshua chapter two. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you or by you, and it's page 178 in the red Bible. If you do not own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep as a gift from Jacob's Well Church. Just to, again, give you the setting of Joshua chapter two, uh, we have this map up here that you can look at. 
Um, Israel uh, failed to take the promised land, if you remember earlier in the series. And so God sends them into the wilderness for 40 years. They come back and they uh, land in this gray region right here on the east side of the Jordan River. This green area is the promised land that God has promised them, the land of Canaan. And so they're over here, and they're right here. It's called Shittim in the Bible, right in this spot. And Moses dies. And then last week, we started in Joshua chapter 1. And in Joshua chapter 1, God commissions Joshua to be the new leader of the people of Israel and to take them in uh, to fill the promised land uh, that, of Canaan that God is giving to them. And, and in chapter 1, God commands Joshua not once uh, but three times to be strong and courageous because the calling on Joshua's life, much like our lives, is strenuous and it is scary. And so he says, be strong and courageous. Joshua responds to the calling by sending some delegates out uh, to the people that are spread throughout that gray area, uh, the Israelites, about two million or so. And he says, get ready. Uh, in about three days, we're going to go in and take the promised land. And so this is going on. Uh, Joshua also sends two spies into the promised land, uh, specifically to go in to Jericho. He doesn't send 12 spies. Last time that happened, it didn't go very good. And so he sends two spies into the promised land to spy out Jericho. And I think I have a map of Jericho right here. This is, uh, this is kind of what people suspect it's like due to archaeological digs. And we'll look at this again later when we get to Joshua chapter 6. But you'll see it's a double-walled city. Uh, it is a very well-fortified city. It is maybe the oldest city in the world. Uh, it is a very old city. Some date it back to 10,000, 11,000 BC. And so at the time of Joshua, uh, this city had been around for 8,000 years. Uh, to put it in perspective, that is 32 times longer than the United States has been around. And so they're doing a good job, right? They're doing a good job. It is a well-fortified city. It is very hard to overtake. They've been around for 8,000, 9,000 years. And God says, I want you to go take that city. And so Joshua decides to spend, send spies into Jericho. Uh, because even though God sovereignly uh, has promised to give them this land, he still has the duty uh, to, 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 to plan and to, and to strategize how to take the land of Jericho. And so let's start uh, by reading just the first three verses of Joshua chapter 2. Again, it's page 178 in the Red Bible. And the first three verses will really give us the context for the rest of the chapter. So Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel had come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this series in Joshua so far, the challenge to be strong and courageous in a crazy world. Lord, help us, God, uh, to look to you for our strength, to look to you for our courage, that we would stand for you, that we would live for you, and that we would love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Imagine uh, you are in the sandals of these spies, and you go into Jericho, and you go into this house, and while you are in this house, there is a knock at the door, and it is the king's men who have come because they know that you have come to spy out the land. And they ask the owner of the house, turn these spies over to us. Can you imagine how frightening that would be? How scared you would be. I mean, you are surely as good as dead. But then the twist happens. The surprise happens. And the surprise comes in the form of a woman named Rahab who is a prostitute. And so today's passage, I want to look at five things about Rahab, the prostitute, who is this surprise twist in this spy mission. The first that I want to look at is the profile of a prostitute. Look at verse one with me again. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shidom as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they, the spies, went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, we may ask ourselves, why would a spy or spies go to the house of a prostitute? Well, there's probably two big reasons for that. First off, um, that was a place where they could spend the night and no one would ask them, why are you staying here, right? It would be assumed why they were staying there. And so it would be a safe place for them to stay. But the other reason is there's a good chance that Rahab, through her clients, had pretty good intel about the city of Jericho. And indeed she did, as we find out. Now, again, what do we know about Rahab? We know that Rahab was a prostitute. Uh, many times in Christian circles, Christian churches, we try to sanitize people in the Bible, make them seem like wholesome, good-hearted people. But we have to be careful not to do that with Rahab. Because if we do that, we actually rob God of his glory, as we'll see as we look through this passage. The Bible takes excruciating pain to make sure that we identify Rahab with her prostitution. She is called a prostitute here in Joshua 6 two more times. And then in the New Testament, where they never talk about people's dirty laundry from the Old Testament. Again, two more times they call her Rahab the prostitute. Now, what is a prostitute? To give a family-friendly definition of a prostitute, a prostitute is someone who sells, who sinfully sells their body uh, for a sinful purpose to sinful people, okay? Rahab's occupation was sinful at its very core. If you were here last week, and we talked about primary and secondary calling. She wasn't doing either of those. She would service man after man after man. Furthermore, because there was no great form of contraception at the time, it is reasonable to think that Rahab had many abortions along the way, whether that be through lotions or potions or even through child sacrifices. The second thing we know is that Rahab was an Amorite. And the Amorites were a very wicked people. Not only did they engage in pagan worship, but they also had temple prostitution and child sacrifices as part of their worship services. These are practices that, that virtually every pagan in the world today would condemn and say this is awful and ruthless. These were the Amorites. They were a horrendous people. And of these horrendous people, there was Rahab, who was at the bottom of the bucket, she was the worst of the worst of society, morally and socially. 
Again, just to put this in perspective, if Rahab showed up at your house knocking on the door, there's a good chance you'd probably lock the door, grab a bat, and call the police. You would not want your children or your husband hanging out with Rahab. This is the type of character that is in this passage. This is the profile of the prostitute. Secondly, we have the profession of a prostitute. And by profession, I don't mean her occupation. We already talked about that. But, but as she proclaims what she believes deep down in her heart, okay? Look at verse one with me again, and we'll go down through verse 11 eventually. It says, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shidom as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they, the spies, went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Verse two, and it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the Land. Evidently, these spies were not very good spies. I mean, they got found out pretty quickly that they are at Rahab's house. Verse 3, then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Again, let's pause here for a second. Imagine if you are in Rahab's spot. What would you do in this situation? You have these two foreigners in your house, two strangers, two men you have never met before, and you have a king that is sending his men to your front door. He is a king of a ruthless empire that, that, that really is, has no hesitation to get rid of a woman like Rahab. And furthermore, not only would they potentially torture and kill Rahab to make an example of her, they'd probably do it to her family as well. And she loved her family very much, as we find out later in this chapter. And so, to be honest, it seems like a no-brainer, right? Just turn the spies over. Save your life. Move on with life. Move on with your business. But again, that's where the surprise of the story comes. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from, right? I didn't know they were spies. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the gate of the city, the men went out. I do not know where they went, where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. In other words, go and catch them before they cross back over the Jordan River to safety. Verse 6, but she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Why in the world was Rahab going to risk her life for these men? It makes no sense at all until you get to verse 8, 311. Verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know, <laughs> I know that the Lord has given you the land. Right? I know he's given you Jericho, which has been established for 8,000 years. No one's ever taken over it. I know the Lord, your God, has given this to you. And she says, and that fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Their courage melted like butter in a frying pan. Verse 10, for we have heard, we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man 
because of you. And then listen to this unbelievable profession of faith. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab is professing that the Lord is God of the sun, the moon, and the stars. She's saying the Lord is God over the rivers and the hills and the valleys of the earth. He is not only God over Israel, he's the God over Canaan and the God over Jericho. Notice she does not say, hey, whoever is God for you is God for you, and whoever is God for me is God for me. No, she is saying there is only one God, and the Lord is God over all. You know, we live in a society that says what God is for you, I have a God for me, right? What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me, we all have different gods, and that's completely fine. But when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense at all. Because if there is a buffet of gods that we get to choose from, then we are the God in this story and not the not the true God. There is only one true God, creator of heaven and earth. And Rahab is saying, the Lord, your, your God, is the one true God over all. Friends, do you know this to be true? Do you know that the Lord is God over America? He is God over Ukraine. He is God over Russia. He's God over North Korea and China. He's God over all civilizations. He's God over the entire world. He's also the God over Christians and over Jews and over Muslims and over Hindus and over pagans. He is the God over preachers and of prostitutes. The Lord is God over all. There is only one true God. And not only does Rahab knows this, but so do the demons. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You know, what strikes me about this prostitute's proclamation of faith is that it is far stronger than the spy's faith 40 years prior to her. When they had come up to the promised land, right, that Lord had promised them that he would give to them, they go in and they come back scared and they do not believe that the Lord God is going to give it to them. And yet here is this woman scared to fall into the hands of an angry God. And the foundation of her fear is everything the Lord had already done. There in verse 10, he parted the Red Sea, crushing the Egyptian army underneath it. He brought to destruction the people of Sihon and Og on the other side of the Jordan River. You know, we've seen this time and time and time again throughout this sermon series, that we can trust God with our future because of his faithfulness in the past. We can trust God with this afternoon because of his faithfulness in the past. We can trust God with tomorrow because of his faithfulness in the past. We can trust God with the rest of our life because he has been faithful in the past. We have the profile of a prostitute, which is not pretty. We have the profession of the prostitute that the Lord is God over all. And next we have the plea of a prostitute. You know, when you understand there, there is one God, the Lord God, he is the only God and that he is holy and righteous and just and you, are, you know and understand your shortcomings and your failings and your sins, there is only one thing to do, which is to plead for mercy. And that's what she does here. Verse 12, now then please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign 
that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. I know at first when we read this passage, it looks like Rahab is asking for protection and return to her uh, harboring the spies. Like, I saved your life, now you have to save my life, a quid pro quo. Um, I've done this for you, now you have to do this for me. But that's not what's going on here. And I, and I know this because she has already saved the spies. Uh, the spies are free to go at any time. She has no more leverage in this relationship because the enemies have already left, the king's men have already left. What she's asking for is that they would save her and her family in the same fashion that she has saved them. She's asking that she, they would show her family the same kindness that she has shown to them. This kindness that this woman asked for in the original, original Hebrew is the word chesed. And this word chesed is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the mercy of God, the extraordinary, steadfast, gracious, covenantal love of God for his people. It is sung about with great joy throughout the Psalms. And this woman knows, this woman knows that her and her family are about to die, that they deserve to die because of the wickedness within their hearts. She knows there is nothing she can do to save herself. She fears the justice of the Lord. And so she asks that they would let her sit, that they would save her and her family, deliver them from death. She pleads for mercy. She pleads for kindness. She does not deserve. She pleads for grace. She pleads for salvation. She wants the unconditional love of the Lord that they have experienced as the people of Israel. That is the plea of this prostitute. Next, we have the promise of a prostitute. Might be better to say promise to a prostitute, but it's the promise that she holds on to. Verse 14 says, and the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. Our life for yours, even on to death. We will die before you die. We will die in your place if we have to. With three stipulations. The first one, he says, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly, chesed, and faithfully with you. They promise salvation if she doesn't spoil the plan to the people of Jericho. Verse 15, then she, left, she let them down by a rope through the window for her house, was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And then as they're going out the window, I guess, verse 16, and she said to them, go into the hills uh, or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. And so if you look at a map up here again, so the spies started here in Shidem. Uh, they came across the Jordan River right here to Jericho where they spent the night. Uh, the, Rahab, the prostitute, tells the king's men uh, to go catch them, and so certainly they would have come back here uh, up to Jericho. That's what it tells us to try to catch the men. And so Rahab says, hey, why don't you go into the hill country for three days and then return home, and you should be safe by then. And so that's what she tells them to do, and it's a good plan as we find out. And so she's telling them um, to camp out west of Jericho uh, and then return back to Shidem. Here's the second stipulation for her salvation. Verse 17 says, The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house 
your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. I don't know if this sounds familiar to you, if, if you can uh, see how this might have been familiar to the Israelites who were going in to conquer the land. But, but what this woman is told is that she needs to put this scarlet, uh, this scarlet cloth over her window. And when the judgment of death comes into Jericho, it will pass over her household. This is eerily similar to the Passover in Egypt. Do you remember the 10th plague in Egypt when God uh, brings death into the city? And he says, anyone who sacrifices a lamb and smears the scarlet blood above their doorpost, whoever does that, death will pass over them. Israel has been celebrating this Passover meal on a yearly basis. And now the Lord is giving to Rahab the prostitute a mini Passover, reenacted for the salvation of her and her household as she puts out the scarlet cloth on her door. The third stipulation for her salvation, verse 19, says, then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. And so the third stipulation is you have to stay in your house when we're attacking the city, okay? Verse 20, spies still outside the window talking to Rahab, evidently getting ready. Um, and they recite the first stipulation, verse 20. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear and she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. You know, as I was preparing this sermon, one of the questions that came to me was, why is Joshua chapter 2 in the Bible? You could actually pretty easily take Joshua 2 out of the Bible, take the story of Rahab out of the Bible, and you would not miss very much. And the question is, why does God put this story of Rahab right at the front of Joshua, right at Joshua chapter 2? And I think the main reason why God does this is because as we read through the book of Joshua, there will be a lot of carnage, there will be a lot of judgment, there will be a lot of people dying in the land of Canaan. And yet, the Lord has chosen to start this book with an amazing story of his kindness and grace and salvation to a prostitute named Rahab. And he does this to show us that God's kindness of salvation is available to anyone in Canaan and honestly anyone in the entire world who genuinely professes faith in the Lord as God over them and receives their mercy and their grace. You see, if God would show his mercy and love, salvation to Rahab, the worst of the worst, Surely no one in the promised land would be outside his scope of salvation if only they believed and trusted in the Lord for salvation. So just to recap, we have the profile of a prostitute, definitely something we would, someone we would probably distance ourselves from. We have the profession of a prostitute, that the Lord is God over all, and that he will give you the promised land. We have seen the plea of a prostitute that according to the kindness, the steadfast love of the Lord, please save me and my family. And we have seen the promise of the prostitute that this will indeed be the case as long as she hangs that crimson thread outside of her window. And finally, we get to the product of a prostitute. In other words, what fruit comes from Rahab's faith? Look at verse 22. 
It says, they, the spies, departed and went to the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing that is between Jericho and the Jordan River. Verse 23, then the two men, the spies, returned. They came down from the hills and passed over the Jordan and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And I love verse 24, what is about to come. Remember, Joshua sent them to do reconnaissance, to find out what's going on in the land, and to bring back a report. And so this is the report they bring to Joshua. Verse 24, they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Notice how the faith of Rahab the prostitute impacted these two spies. Rahab's faith and the victory of, these, of the Lord in the promised land helped these spies grow in their confidence and in their courage and in their strength and the plan and the power of God. And their confidence surely was an encouragement to Joshua, who was the leader of the people, who surely would have encouraged the people of the land with this faith of Rahab. That's why testimonies are so valuable. That's why in our small groups, we're sharing our stories with one another, because our testimonies encourage us in the work of the Lord, in the power of the Lord, and the love of the Lord. Have you ever heard a testimony that encouraged you in your faith? Have you ever been around someone who loved the Lord so much, you're like, oh man, I got so far to go, and it encourages you in your faith? Rahab's faith was an encouragement to these spies, to Joshua, to all of Israel. But that's not all. Rahab's faith is also supposed to be an encouragement to you and to me. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is in the New Testament, written to Christians, it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then it says this, it has Rahab as an example, as a model for us of faith. It says, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient. And then again in James chapter two, he's showing how her faith actually took action in protecting the spies and risking her own life. Rahab's faith was infectious and contagious. It produced courage and faith in those who were around her and even beyond. But it actually produced much more than that. You see, after Israel took Jericho, Rahab's life is completely transformed. Not only is her life spared, she is welcomed into the people of God. She marries a Jewish prince named Salmon. They have a son named Boaz. Boaz, like his father, marries a Gentile convert named Ruth, a Moabite. Ruth has a son named Obed, and Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has a son named David, right? And David becomes the king over Israel. But more than that, it is to King David that the Lord promises one of his descendants will become the king of kings for all eternity, and indeed, it will be God in the flesh, Savior of the world. So we turn to the very front of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, and it begins with a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. It starts the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then it lists for 16 verses various names, most of them names of men, names like Isaac, the father of Judah, Judah, the father of Perez, and it's mostly men. But on a few occasions, there are women interspersed in this genealogy. In verse 3, it lists a woman named Tamar. And I don't know if you know this, but Tamar was also a prostitute. What makes it even worse is she was a prostitute to her father-in-law, 
That is weird, okay? And then you get to verse five, and it lists Rahab as a prostitute. There are very few women listed in the genealogy of Jesus, and yet two of them are prostitutes. These are people we would hide from our family tree, and yet God puts it on display for all to see. And the question is, why does God do this? And it is to remind us that God's grace extends to the worst of sinners, and that God takes the life of sinners and turns them into a trophy of his grace and his purposes of salvation. And so this is the produce, the fruit of Rahab, an encouragement of faith to the people of God, and from her line, the savior of the world. Let me end with this. So, so I, I did a lot of story, kind of want to do more application right now. Um, I've shared this story before, but I think it's just so fitting uh, for this passage, and um, it's an it's a illustration given by a pastor named Matt Chandler. And he talks about when he, was in a fre- when he was a freshman in college, he was in a class and he sat next to this 26-year-old single woman. Uh, as he started getting to know her, wanting to share Jesus with her, he, find out, he found out that she was a mom, that she had had a child. Uh, they went over to her house to babysit for her occasionally. And later they find out that, that, that when they were babysitting for her, she was going to see a, another man who was married. She was in an extramarital affair. Uh, As they continued to minister to her, they invited her to this special event where one of his friends was playing in a concert, and there was going to be this kind of gospel call to to come to faith in Christ. And so uh, his friend plays a concert, and it's great, and the preacher gets up, and the preacher holds up a rose. And and he says, you see this rose? I want you, and this is like, I don't know, hundreds of college students. He says, I want you to take this rose, smell this rose, touch this rose, feel this rose, hand it around the room, okay? And so he goes on with this sermon, and the rose finally makes its way back up. He has it there, and it's broken. The leaves are falling off. It just looks absolutely nasty. And he's trying to preach a sermon about sexual purity. And so he says, who would want this rose? Who would want this rose? All touched, all messed up, all mangled, all that stuff. Who would want this rose? And Matt said, everything inside of him wanted to say, Jesus wants the rose. That's the story of the gospel that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants the prostitute. Jesus wants the Rahab. You know, as you look at this story, what are the names? What are the names of the spies? Do you notice the names of the spies? They're absent. The names of the spies are not in this story because this name is, this story is not primarily about the spies. This story is primarily about the one who is named. It is primarily about Rahab, the prostitute. We know her name because she is precious to the Lord. She is the rose of God's affection. Do you see Joshua sent the spies into the land on a reconnaissance mission. That's why Joshua sent them into the land, at a reconnaissance mission. But that was not the Lord's mission. The Lord sent them in as a search and rescue mission for someone who is precious to the Lord himself. One of his daughters who was now in Jericho, and the Lord wanted to assure her salvation. Friends, we often identify ourselves with people and stories. And yet I think in this story, God wants us to identify ourselves with Rahab. 
Throughout the scripture, he says we are spiritual prostitutes, that we chase after other things to try to benefit us, and they always leave us empty and dirty and wanting more. I have good news for you, friends. Joshua 2 is not only, not the only search and rescue mission the Lord God has orchestrated. Oh no, this is only a shadow of a much greater search and rescue mission coordinated by the Lord God himself, in which God does not send two nameless men into the world, but he sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into the world, not to do reconnaissance, but in the words of Jesus himself, he is sent into the world to seek and to save the lost. He comes to seek and to save men and women like you and me. And yet for this spy Jesus, he did not escape the wrath of the king of the age. He is bound, he is sent to the cross where he dies for our sin, to pay the penalty for our sin so that his crimson blood can be hung not over the doorposts of our entryway or the windows of our house, but so that his crimson blood can wash all of our sin away, wash our hearts clean so that the death we deserve can pass over us. Friends, you may feel like you don't belong here today. You may feel like you are the worst of sinners, worse than anyone else around here can imagine. You know, Rahab may have been the worst sinner in the Old Testament. She has competition, but she might be the worst. But in the New Testament, according to God, that title, worst sinner, belongs to the apostle Paul. And I want to end with what he says in 1 Timothy 1, 14 through 17. This is what he says. He says, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world on mission to save sinners of who I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, talking about all of us, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And then he celebrates with doxology, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for Joshua chapter two. You did not have to include it in the Bible, but you did. And you did to remind us that you save the worst of sinners. You save people like Rahab. You save people like Paul. You save people like us to yourself, that, that, that you have sent Jesus as a rescue mission into the world to seek and to save me, to save us onto yourself. When all we deserve is judgment, you have extended to us your chesed, kindness, love, mercy, and grace. And for that, we give thanks to you this morning. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that feels like they are just too sinful to be forgiven by God, may they remember the story of Rahab. May they remember that your grace is deeper than all of our sin. And may they trust in you and you alone for their salvation. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.